And our sermon text as we are continuing through the gospel of Matthew and starting to get close to the end here, uh, although there is a lot coming up, um, we're entering probably some of the most heaviest content of Matthew's gospel. And uh, we come now to Matthew 20 at the very end, verses 29 through 34. And we read these words. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We ask now that as we consider this miracle that uh, has been recorded here in the words of our Savior, that we would look upon it and see once again that Jesus is a king, but he is a good and compassionate and merciful king who pardons sin and brings people into his kingdom through his grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This little narrative that we're looking at today in Matthew is, in fact, Matthew's last recorded miracle of healing. Now, it's not the last miracle, of course, because the resurrection is coming, and that is the greatest miracle of all. But this is the last miracle of healing where Jesus heals somebody with a great need. And one has to wonder why Matthew saves this story for nearly the end. And now, of course, in the timeline, in the historic timeline, it does occur at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry as he is quickly approaching Jerusalem and the climax of his ministry there on earth. However, Matthew arranges his material in such a way that there is there is an intent. He wants us to see something. We are meant to pay attention to why this is at the end. Why does he save it for last? In fact, all gospel writers arrange their material and, and tell the narrative of Christ on earth from his birth to his death and resurrection, with a particular emphasis in mind. Luke writes in a manner to to show us the humanity of Jesus, zeroing in on his human nature. And John takes us uh, to the deity of Christ. He presents a very philosophical approach as, as we look upon Christ as God. Mark dials in on the actions of Jesus. It is the shortest book. It is quick. It is fast-paced, uh, the f- shortest of the Gospels. And it's meant to emphasize Jesus' uh, 
what he is actually doing as the suffering servant of God. And then Matthew, as we have been observing for some time now, points to Christ as the king who has fulfilled the law and the prophets. And so we come then to this little incident, this last detailed miracle in Jesus' earthly ministry in the Gospel of Matthew, and it has very much this kingly focus in mind. Here we have the King of all heaven and earth pausing from his very important journey to fulfill his ultimate purpose of dying sacrificially on the cross in order to save his people from their sins. And he pauses from that all-important journey to respond in love and mercy to those who have been forgotten and abandoned by others. After having given us one of the clearest statements of that mission, which we considered last week, that Jesus would become a ransom for many, freeing them from their sin, we now find him and his band of disciples arriving in the city of Jericho. And yes, it is that Jericho, the one whom God had given in victory to Joshua many years before this by tearing down the walls. Jericho is the last city of decent size on this journey towards Jerusalem. This is taking place during the time of Passover or leading up to the Passover. Many Jewish people would make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate there. And so Jericho was this big rest stop, this big final stopover to get any final supplies and make that final push towards Jerusalem. And it is among that crowd of people that we find Jesus and his disciples. He, by this point, has, of course, become rather popular. He's gathered a rather large following. Now, some of the people that follow Jesus truly are devoted to him in faith. Others followed him merely out of curiosity or interest in seeing what he would say and what he would do next. I mean, he had garnered the reputation of one who could heal the lame and cast out demons, restore the blind, cause the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. He's even raised people from the dead. And it wasn't just what he had done, his actions that caused people to follow him in wonder and astonishment, but what he says. By now, people no doubt knew who he was claiming to be. He was saying he is the Christ, the King of kings, the son of David, who would deliver his people from their sins. He is God incarnate. At least that's what he claimed. He spoke with such authority that his words could be considered nothing less than the very word of God himself. He answered every challenge to his authority. He he confounded the Pharisees, leaving them perplexed. He answered the scribes of the law in a way that astounded them, to which they could not respond, leaving them speechless. And the priests are wondering, who is this man? 
Jesus was indeed very popular by this point. And that popularity would come into clearer focus, or will come into clearer focus, rather, uh, with his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, which we will see next. But for now... Jesus and his disciples are part of this large, noisy crowd moving through the dusty streets of old Jericho towards Jerusalem for the Passover. And, uh, and above the, the din of the crowd comes a shout of two voices crying out to be heard above the clamor. Matthew tells us this crying comes from the combined voices of two blind beggars. These men, were told, are sitting by the roadside, on the ground, in the dirt, in the dust. There they sat, begging. In fact, that was the only way they could have hoped to survive. Being blind, they could not find work, like a normal job. No one would employ a blind man to harvest their grain, to work in their vineyards. To build a house. There was no government assistance program to which they could turn. There was no social worker that they could go to and seek assistance. They didn't have the tools, the resources that blind people today can enjoy. And so they do the only thing they possibly can. They sit in the dirt and they beg. And the competition was fierce around Jericho when it came to begging. You see, Jericho was the site of a large and healthy balsam industry. And a large number of blind people were known to gather around Jericho and within its streets because balsam was considered to be a treatment for many eye defects. So... As a blind person, there you are in Jericho begging. You had a lot of competition. If you happen to sit in the wrong spot along the road that day, you might not receive any help because as the people pass by, they may have passed by someone who was there before you and they already helped them. And you probably would not receive any assistance. And so there they sit by the side of the road, the crowd passing by. And with each footstep of each person, it felt like hope was passing by them as well. Hungry and destitute, they needed, they needed someone to see them, someone to notice. But life just seemed to be moving on by. And so often life is like that for those who need mercy. Mercy seems to be a a commodity that is more precious than gold and rarer than diamonds. But this day would be different. On this day, Jesus had come to Jericho. And these two blind men would be shown unimaginable mercy. Mercy of which they could only dream For they hear that Jesus of Nazareth would be passing through Jericho on that day. This was that man that some had said was a prophet like Elijah of old. He could heal. He could restore sight through the power of the Spirit of God. Others claimed that, of course, that he was more than Elijah, that he, in fact, was the Son of God, the long-awaited Christ, the Messiah, the King of Heaven. 
Would the creator of all heaven and earth take the time to stop and show some measure of compassion to these poor blind men when so many lesser men had ignored them? Well, they could only hope. And so they position themselves along the main road, and there they wait. As the morning breaks, the crowds begin to filter into the streets, and slowly that crowd grows in number. These blind men, of course, they can't see Jesus, but they can listen. So they turn their heads, they they tune their ears to hear something different than the regular shuffle of feet and the noise of the crowd. And they wait, and then they hear it. Jesus was passing by. Perhaps it was a barrage of questions that the crowd was asking of Christ. Or perhaps it was a prelude to his triumphal entry as people cried out to make way for the king. Whatever it was, though, the blind men knew Jesus is coming. Here was their chance Here comes hope. And so they do the only thing they can. They cry out for mercy. They pull in all the air they could. They lift their heads up to sky and they shout with every fiber of their being, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. This is a cry of desperation coming from hearts that have felt a lifetime of suffering. Their plea for help is worth looking at in a little more detail. Notice first how they address Jesus. They call him Lord and they call him the son of David. And this is pointed, it is powerful, it is direct. For far too long, they have been crying out for mercy, begging for mercy from lesser people who have simply ignored them. But now they have a chance to beg for mercy from the one whose authority was divine. By calling Jesus Lord, they are acknowledging his great authority and power. And as a person of that kind of power and authority, certainly he could bring help into their lives that they had never experienced before. He could end their suffering. He could bring... Uh, the definitive end to their helplessness and sorrow. They also call him the son of David, which is also significant. For they are confessing by calling him the son of David, that he, in fact, is the long-waited-for king, the promised heir of David, who would sit on the throne forever and ever after giving the people rest from all their enemies. And generation after generation of Israelites had hoped for this king to come. Every new child born of David's line gave them fresh hope. But all those hopes soon faded into discouragement as the ages passed. For every king from Solomon all the way to Zedekiah proved to be sinful failures. Now while some of them would bring a hint of mercy, none of them could bring true mercy to God's people. And so the people continued to walk even as these blind men in darkness, in spiritual darkness. 
But these blind men, they believe. They believe that Jesus is this king. They call him the son of David. He had come. So why not appeal to his authority as our king? Why not ask him who is the son of David and thus the Christ? Why not ask him for mercy? For surely he had the authority to do the miraculous and deliver them from the long dark night of suffering once and for all. And what is mercy? It is a show of compassion and kindness to one who has a serious need. It is more than just a feeling. It's an action. It actually notices a person and it steps into their life in such a way as to bring help and relief. But that's the very thing that actually makes mercy such a rare thing. The blind men in this narrative, they know that all too well. After all, they're accustomed to sitting there on the side of the road hoping someone might actually take the time to pity them. And too often they were ignored. You see, the world in which we live, it doesn't want to hear cries for mercy. It would rather ignore them. As the men call out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David, the crowd turns against them. They rebuke the blind men. They threaten them. They tell them, be quiet, remain silent. Jesus of Nazareth doesn't want to hear from you. He has more important things to do. Why would a king stop to listen to a couple of blind beggars? Be quiet. The cruelty of our sinful, broken world is such that people have no time to show true mercy to others. I mean, many people, it is true, have feelings of sympathy towards those who suffer, but rarely do they do anything about the suffering they see. Feelings only go so far and often do not lead to action. Furthermore, when when people are moved to act mercifully, it's never done with pure motives, Because the human heart is impure and as a result of the fall. So our mercy always is tainted by our selfish, self-righteous hearts in some way. Even our best of merciful actions. People will show mercy sometimes only with those whom they agree. Those who are like them. Whom they think uh, are similar. And share similar values or views. But they would never show mercy to someone they despise. It's interesting. You know, tolerance is such a buzzword in popular culture. And it's often tied to the idea of being merciful. But tolerance isn't mercy. In fact, those who preach tolerance the loudest, as we observe, are often the most intolerant of people. Mercy is shown towards those who I like, but those, uh, those who agree with me, but everyone else, well, they can just continue to suffer. They can just deal with it. Or worse, well, they deserve it. They deserve the pain life has given them. You see, misplaced mercy isn't mercy at all. It's cruelty. No, this, this kingdom of this world is not merciful. It pretends to be. But it's just a facade. 
And so the world goes on, turning, full of people, crying out for mercy, and nobody seems to listen or care. People sit and suffer in silence from fear, anxiety, darkness, depression, too often afraid to cry out, to ask for help, because they feel they'll be met with cliché answers and shallow sympathy. Loneliness is is a pandemic in our current society, and those who sound the alarm about it are sometimes silenced by uh, more flamboyant headlines. Abuse of all kinds keeps people shackled in terror. The silent cry of the unborn goes out from the grave as we cut them down, ironically in the name of mercy, thus making a mockery of the very idea of it. The poor are kept poor by poorly designed ideas and programs because it's convenient. The abandoned are trapped in their abandonment. And then when it comes to the guilt and the shame of our own sinful hearts, many times people will cry out for mercy, for relief, because they know something isn't right. And what do they get? Often deceitful remedies, popular gospels, but not the gospel. And this only serves to bring more harm and shame. I mean, people are told to, well, don't call yourself broken or simply embrace your brokenness. That's who you are. It's okay. Your depravity really isn't depraved. Just accept it. That's who you are. And many a blind shepherd leads the blind further into their darkness. In God's word through the prophet, uh, mouth of the prophet Jeremiah, it feels so relatable in Jeremiah 50, where we read these words, My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds, that would be the spiritual leaders, have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. And from mountain to hill they have gone. They have forgotten their fold. All who found them have devoured them. And their enemies have said, We're not guilty, for they have sinned against the Lord, their habitation of, their habitation of righteousness, the Lord, the hope of their fathers. Indeed, the world never shows true mercy because, well, they're blind to their own need of it. We need someone to see us. We need someone who will note us. Someone who can listen, who hears the cry, who has the power to actually act and do something. And thanks be to God, He listens. He listens to the cries for mercy and He answers them with the cross. We see here the compassion of our King of Jesus in this text. So the crowd, they try to silence these blind men. And this, of course, only encourages them to cry all the louder. They will not be silenced. They needed mercy. And so they continue to hear, to cry out, Jesus is nearby after all. The King, the Messiah, will he hear us? Or will he just pass by as so many others have? And so he draws closer now, they can tell. And so they lift up their voices, even as people are trying to silence them. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Lord, have mercy on us. And what's this? He stops. Jesus 
stops. The king will pause. He will not pass them by. I mean, consider for a moment again where he is headed and the business to which he must attend. He's on his way to the cross. The road he travels down will ultimately take him up a hill shaped like a skull, dragging a cross behind him. And there on the top of that hill, on that road, he will die as the willing sacrifice for sinners to do what they could not do, extend the ultimate mercy, the forgiveness of their sins. Such an important mission cannot be interrupted by two blind beggars, can it? But Jesus stops that all-important journey because this is no interruption. In fact, it's part of that journey. This is the fulfillment of that mission. The Lord of glory will pause, will notice, and listen to these two blind beggars crying out for mercy because that is exactly why he came. To earth. Not only does Jesus stop and listen to the men, but get this, he asks them exactly what they need. He talks to them. And here we see further compassion of our Lord on full display. What do you want me to do for you? He asks. Here is the creator of all speaking directly and personally to these two blind men in need. They had done nothing to earn his attention, much less this response from him. And yet here now he stands before them saying, what do you need? How can I help you? Nobody had done this before. I mean, some, of course, had dropped a coin or two before these blind men in pity as they are out begging. But here is Jesus stopping and actually saying, what can I do to help lift your burden and pull you up from this low estate? And their request is simple. Lord, let our eyes be opened. They don't ask for money. They ask for what they truly need to have their sight granted. I mean, if they had their sight, they could go and make money. They would be able to live free. They would never need to beg for mercy again from anyone else. They wouldn't have to sit in the dirt and in the street any longer. They're asking for ultimate mercy. Matthew tells us that Jesus responds to that request in pity or compassion. The word uh, is really an interesting word. It has to do with literally a, a churning of the insides, just deep movement towards them. Jesus is turning towards them, being moved emotionally. Of course, we are always careful to maintain an important biblical doctrine called the impassibility of God, which says that God is not vulnerable to involuntary passions. That is to say that uh, we as humans, if we do something, he doesn't involuntarily react to it. He is, after all, sovereign and has determined all things. But God isn't emotionless, no. 
He does exhibit emotion from anger and love to sorrow and joy. And we see that especially in the second person of the Trinity in Jesus Christ. We find in him perfect emotion. As Calvin expressed it, the Son of God, having clothed himself with our flesh of his own accord, clothed himself with human feelings so that he did not defer at all from his brethren, sin only accepted. Our compassion and our pity that we try to display, even in its strongest and best state, is tepid, it's lukewarm at best, in comparison to the compassion of Christ the King. Jesus was without sin. He was perfect. And so the pity, the compassion that he shows towards these blind beggars was also perfect. It was deeper and warmer and more profound than anything we could hope to muster up towards those in need. And it is deeper and warmer and more profound than any emotion, any compassion, any pity we have experienced ourselves. Jesus' compassion was not affected by any tinge of selfishness or pride. And so from that pure and spotless love and pity, Jesus reaches out and he touches the blind men's eyes. And instantly their sight is restored. He not only stops, he not only listens and asks what they need, But out of compassion and love, he actually does something about their situation. He heals them, changing their lives forever. And as a result, Matthew tells us they followed him. Not only was their physical sight restored, but their spiritual sight as well. They followed him. They became his disciples. And so there it is. The last healing miracle recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. What does it mean for us? Well, this miracle is meant to be a lasting witness to our merciful King. You see, Jesus is still merciful. And we all, in some way or another, are like these blind men. And no, we we may not be suffering physical blindness, but we all have trials. We all suffer from the effects of living in this fallen world. All people are broken because all people are sinners. The Bible is clear about that. And we suffer from the effects of the fall uh, through our own rebellious actions as we sin against God and others. And when we are sinned against by others and suffer, we hurt people and we are hurt by others. And on top of that, we experience all the miseries that life can bring from illness to stress to anxiety to sorrow to loneliness. We all need mercy. And sometimes we cry out for mercy to the world. We want things to change. We want things to be better. That cry of mercy may be quiet, calling out from a broken heart. Perhaps the the shame and guilt of your own failure before God crushing you. Perhaps you've been hurt and wounded by another. Whatever the reason, though, it, it feels like that cry is unheard. Nobody cares. Nobody is listening. 
But there is one who is listening. He is always listening. If you cry out to him in mercy, Jesus will not pass you by. If you cry out to him in faith, Lord, have mercy on me, he will stop and he will listen. He will ask what your need is. You can share it with him. And he will have mercy from a heart of perfect pity to you if you but seek him. There is not a burden so great that he cannot lift it. And there is not a request so small that he will not listen. So go to him. Cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, son of David. And you will find mercy to help in time of need. Hebrews 4 passage many of us are familiar with. Since then we have a great high priest, that is Jesus, who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That is our faith manifested through this cry for mercy. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, he is one in every respect who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, that's the promise of God to you if you are in Christ. That is the heart of your Savior in heaven that bends to help broken hearts of sinners on earth. Thomas Goodwin, a 17th century pastor and one of the members of the Westminster Assembly which uh, produced our confession of faith, once explained Jesus' mercy and compassion like this. Your very sins move him to pity more than to anger. Yea, his pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease. His hatred shall all fall, and that only upon the sin to free you of it. By its ruin and destruction, but his compassion shall be more drawn out to you. And this as much when you lie under sin as under any other affliction. Therefore, fear not what shall separate us from the love of Christ. And so let us go like blind men in the street begging for mercy. Let us go to Him. Let us go to Him all the more when we feel the weight of our own depravity crushing us down and our own hearts condemning us. For Christ is our great King of mercy. And He will stop and He will listen if you but cry out to Him. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful that you are one who listens. And not only do you listen, but you act as we see in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. 
Father, I pray that you will impress these things upon the hearts of your people now. That you will remind us that we are not alone in this cruel and evil and broken, twisted world. That even if we are hated by the world, we are loved with an infinite, eternal love by you through Christ our Lord. That you move upon us in compassion. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name. Amen.